Hey, greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Very glad to have you with me today, and I'm very excited to have with me on the program today Mary Beth Kelly, former member of the Michigan Supreme Court, now a candidate for Wayne County Circuit Court. Mary Beth Kelly, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Well, thank you, Craig, and it's my pleasure to be here. Well, you know, I, I was listening to an interview you did the other day on Paul W. Smith's show, and, and I thought it was an interesting take that you had that, uh, you know, because we think of the Supreme Court as being the pinnacle of the legal profession, right? Uh, but it is so much different than the kind of work that you get to do at the circuit court level. And it certainly seems as if you find more value in dealing with individual cases as opposed to sort of these loftier questions of, of uh, stare decisis and things along those lines. That's, that's exactly it. And I think that's, I, I talked a lot about that um, with uh, Kevin Dietz on, on the Paul W. Smith show, but um, so a trial court, like the circuit court, the court I'm running for and the court that I previously served on for 11 years, um, we really hear everyday people disputes. It's really kind of the people's court, if you will. So um, I, I'm also a visiting judge on that court right now assigned to the family division. So we hear, you know, we hear in the circuit court, we hear criminal cases, we hear divorce cases, we hear child protective services cases where people um, have been abused of maltreatment and they stand to lose the rights, the parental rights to their children, which obviously is probably the most dear right that one has. And so the way that you run a trial court really impacts people directly. And people feel that, and you feel that when you're in the courtroom. And um, you're right, being on the Supreme Court, um, and it was a great honor, and I felt like I contributed much while I was there. But it's a totally different kind of job, if you will. Um, dealing with appellate law, during with, dealing with those matters that are jurisprudentially significant, if you will, um, to the state of Michigan, it is very, very different than trying a case as to whether one has actually abused their child or not, and should that person no longer have the rights to raise that child. That's a terribly important, important case. And um, to me, it was what I found lacking on the, I shouldn't say lacking, I, I found that my people skills in dealing with the public and dealing with lawyers and actually creating, as I say, like the sense of justice that one can feel when they walk into a courtroom and they can feel it if it's not there. They can feel it if it's not there. And that to me is what I consider my greatest contribution to the, to the judiciary. Well, you know, and I want to ask you about that because you left the Supreme Court. You, you went to Bodman, which is obviously a, a big international firm. I mean, they, they have a great reputation uh, and the private sector obviously is quite a bit more lucrative than the judiciary. That is for sure. But, but there must have been something lacking in that private practice that you were missing. Well, so um, I was with Bodman for really just over a year when JAMS, which is Judicial Arbitration and Mediation Services, um, which is a global uh, dispute resolution firm, opened its office in Detroit, Michigan. And Jerry Rosen uh, had just uh, completed and just stepped down as chief judge of the Eastern District Federal Court. And Steve Rhodes was the chief judge of the bankruptcy court. And of course, the two of them together, uh, as you know, um, mastered, if you will, uh, the grand bargain that got Detroit out of bankruptcy. So I was approached by Jerry Rosen asking if I'd be interested in joining JAMS. And the idea of mediating cases and adjudicating arbitrations, which I really enjoy doing, was something that really appealed to me. It was kind of like private judging, if you will. And so I started working at JAMS. And shortly after that, the chief judge of the Wayne County Circuit Court 
Bob Colombo at the time, um, approached me and said, would you be interested in being a visiting judge in addition to this mediation and arbitration stuff you're doing? Jam said that it was fine. And so I started working as a visiting judge back in January of 2018 in the circuit court, um, specifically in the family division and filling in at first for judges who were out on medical leave. And then after that, there were a series of some um, backlog cases. Now, most cases settle no matter what division, no matter what division, the vast majority of cases settle. So, you know, just to give you an idea, our, in our civil division, um, our last annual report is for 2018. Um, 2019 annual report would have come out at the end of the first quarter, which we all know was when COVID hit. So we're, we're still waiting for those, for that uh, st statistical report. But in 2018, just to give you an idea, the civil division started uh, with some 25 thousand cases 10,000 of those cases settled 35 went to jury trial and 35 went to bench trial and then some remained at the end of the year so you know a, a trial in a civil matter is very very rare likewise in domestic relations the vast majority of these cases settle and in domestic relations it's really more difficult um, a lot of people can't afford a lawyer and you know, their, their spouse might want to get divorced, they both might want to get divorced, but the grim reality is it's really expensive to get divorced. And we know that the vast majority of those cases settle too. So you know, Wayne County is unique in that it's not just the largest you know, circuit court in the state of Michigan, and it's not just spread out among four different buildings, which is itself an impediment, but it's got so many pro se litigants and so the access to justice issues become very, very important. And it becomes really important that um, the court offer mediation services, which we do, that the court funnel pro se litigants to legal aid chapters, um, because that's becoming, there's more and more federal and um, state dollars being spent on uh, legal aid. And so, but the judge also plays a role in that. And the judge can treat uh, a pro se litigant with respect and with dignity, or a judge can ride roughshod over them. And so I think it's really important that we recognize that when our citizens come to court, they deserve to be treated, whether or not they have a lawyer, with, with all of the respect that the judge can offer, and also with all of the resources that both the court has and that our community has. It does seem as if we are witnessing sort of a shift in the way that the judiciary is thinking about these very things you're talking about. I mean, it was just, you know, a couple of decades ago that every judge that was running for a position was talking about this, you know, I'm strong and I'm law and order kind of person, tough on crime. The reality is the stuff you're dealing with in the circuit court are things like custody cases, divorces, civil matters, um, and making sure people have adequate representation didn't used to be the top concern. Where did the shift occur? And, and is it a good thing? The great thing. And so the shift has occurred, I would say, in about the last 10 years or so. Um, the access to justice, as we call it, um, has been federally mandated. The American Bar Association uh, mandates it. Uh, our Supreme Court mandates it. And it involves uh, all kinds of issues besides persons being able to uh, afford a lawyer. But um, the, the other shift that I think you speak to, which is so important, is um, we've created, and, and this I think is an access to justice issue, so many treatment courts. 
And so for decades, we had the adult drug court and uh, nonviolent offenders whose crime was really committed uh, because of an addiction to substances could be diverted into this adult drug court. And they would be closely monitored, they would receive services, and it was very, very successful. So successful in the sense that, that offenders uh, got treatment for their addiction, they got over their addiction, you had to, you had to be clean, if you will, to graduate from, from uh, drug court. Um, but they also um, didn't clog up our jails with persons who really needed substance abuse treatment. Well, since that time, um, we've now created, and state law has actually required some of these treatment courts, we have the mental health court. Um, we have the veterans court for those persons who have served our country, um, come back and for whatever reason, find themselves entangled in the criminal justice system. We have a, a very, very successful veterans court. Um, we have a juvenile mental health court which is so important for our young people because um, we know that a young person's uh, brain has not fully developed. Young people don't think through the consequences of their actions. And when you couple that with some kind of mental health issue, um, there's, there's no reason to treat that young person within the juvenile system itself. Uh, we'll talk about juvenile justice in just a second, because I think that's a, a key issue here in the state of Michigan, obviously. But you were talking about how uh, these diversions away from from criminal courts in particular have, have led to obviously not clogging up the jails. Now, they have put pressure on things like friend of the court, uh, the probationary system as well. Um, and, and so you've got caseloads that, that may be higher than we might like. Uh, do you get a sense that the powers that be in Lansing and in Washington are beginning to understand they need to funnel resources to those support aspects of the judicial system um, that don't often get the type of attention they might need? That's a great question. There's no question that, so our friend of the court, 2018, collected some $2.7 million in, uh, no, excuse me, $267 million in child support, just in Wayne County, just in Wayne County. And that's huge. At friend of the court, um, you know, in in Wayne County, we are really strapped with um, the fiscal, our budget issues. So, you know, Wayne County as a whole, obviously property taxes are not what they used to be. Uh, And so we have a really hard time at the front of the court retaining talent. We have so many open positions. So yes, we need those support, those ancillary parts of the court um, to really be lifted up. And that is a realization nationally. It is a realization in Lansing. Um, I think that our, our present Chief Justice, um, Justice Bridget McCormick, is very, very committed to uh, not to the treatment courts, to the access to justice issues, and to getting people out of incarceration that don't belong there. Well, um, that, that brings up the question then of like issues like cash bail. Uh, you know, yeah. there are a lot of circumstances where, you know what, you can't pay cash bail. You are basically incarcerated until you're until you're hearing. And that means you lose your job or, you know, and, and no way to support your family, which just exacerbates the problem. It really does. And now it means that you'd be height, you would be subject to a heightened uh, exposure to COVID. So the the cash bond and high bond and the disparity among judges on bond issues is is very, very significant. Um, I think it's very important that judges respect the recommendations of prosecutors on bail issues. Um, Prosecutors are close to the case. They have done a lot of investigation that the judge doesn't know about yet. And so when you see a judge 
going way over what uh, the prosecutor has even recommended as the bond, um, I think that's a real issue. And um, I, I would favor more uniformity in courts on, on bail issues. You know, if you have a first time nonviolent offender, th there's no reason for a cash bond on that person. And you're right. The first question I always ask, because I actually do a lot of arraignments um, on, uh, right now I'm doing a lot of arraignments. And the first question I ask is, uh, is, 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 is the defendant employed? And if the defendant is employed, you know, by whom? How long has he been employed? Um, I often ask, did you have to take a drug test to get that job? And the answer is usually yes. And I say, did you pass? And the answer is usually yes. And, you know, when you have someone like that, that's not a person that we want to detain. And I also think people should not be detained unless they're violent on issues like, you know, um, a, a parole violation. You know, we tend to detain them until they can get a hearing. Well, you know, why don't we just tether them until they can get a hearing? So I think that the issue of um, bringing some parity and bringing some guidelines to bond issues is, is a really important subject. Uh, I should remind folks, my guest right now is Mary Beth Kelly. She is right now a candidate for Wayne County Circuit Court. She is currently a visiting judge in the court, but she was in the court before that. She was in the Michigan Supreme Court for several years as well. Um, let's get to juvenile justice for just a second, because Michigan went through a period where we were, again, you know, towing that tough on crime uh, line. And we had young people, uh, Nathaniel Abraham comes to mind, going to jail for life as, as a, shooting somebody as an 11 year old. Uh, there were a number of other high profile cases in the state. Um, what we've learned from that is that that early incarceration uh, doesn't necessarily set somebody up for success as they become an adult, even if they do get let out. And that, that one ended tragically, obviously. Tragically, tragically, there's no question. But and, it was such a huge example of it. And it almost seems to have triggered sort of a review of these policies nationwide. And, and that's, you know, I mean, somebody's guy, I guess, has to be the guinea pig in these types of things. But what have we learned about how to treat young people in this system? So we've had tremendous leadership from the United States Supreme Court on this issue, who has really taken seriously the issue of brain science. And they have, in their opinions, um, the, the majority has expressed, we know that teenagers' brains are not fully developed. We know that they act impulsively. We know that they act differently. We know that they don't think through the consequences of their actions. And, you know, worst of all, sometimes just hanging around with the wrong person can get someone incarcerated as an accomplice or as a conspirator. And so um, the Supreme Court has, has actually um, weighed in on a number of very significant cases. One of the great joys um, of my legal career, honestly, and my time on the Supreme Court was having Brian Stevenson, um, who I'm just, he's one of my legal heroes. So Brian Stevenson was just featured in um, the movie Just Mercy, which is the name of a book he authored, sort of an autobiography of himself. And he is um, well known as a Harvard educated uh, lawyer for taking on the cases of indigent persons on death row throughout the United States who he believes to be innocent. But he's expanded that to um, juvenile justice as well. And he argued the case in the Michigan Supreme Court on whether juvenile uh, offenders who were sentenced to life without parole should be given an individualized hearing where the court gets to assess these issues like you know how old were they when they committed the crime what kind of support system did they have at home um you know what 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 kind of maturity level do they have what's their iq you know and so 
um, again, that was one of the great, great delights of my, of my legal career and, and my time on the Michigan Supreme Court. To my great disappointment, I could, could not get four of my colleagues to agree with me. And I wrote the dissent in a case called People versus Carp. But to my delight, two years later, um, the, Michigan, or the United States Supreme Court uh, agreed with the reasoning. And now any individual who's in a, a Michigan uh, prison because of a, a crime that he or she committed as a juvenile uh, is entitled to an individualized hearing where the court has to assess whether that person should remain incarcerated. But the whole juvenile justice system itself has undergone tremendous reform where there's so much diversion now, we're diverting young people who don't, you know, nonviolent offenders without a record uh, into diversion programs. We're, um, we're not incarcerating truant people anymore, which, you know, seems, seems like a, a silly thing to say, but we used to do that. So um, there's been a lot of juvenile reform and um, I'm very grateful to have served on the Michigan Committee for Juvenile Justice to actually have chaired it. And uh, while the legislature passed the raise the age legislation. So of course that refers to in Michigan, we used to treat 17 year olds as they were adults. And it wasn't like they were, the prosecutor chose to charge them as an adult. They were deemed an adult. And the worst part of all of that in my mind is that these 17 year olds had no idea. They had no idea that if they thought it was a great idea one night to jump into a car and take it for a joyride, and they were 17 years old, and, and they get stopped and arrested, they're gonna be charged as adults with you know, um, all, kinds of, all kinds of crimes. I mean, that, the, the, the persons in the car would be co-conspirators, they'd be agers and abettors. And so um, happily, Michigan is no longer the outlier on uh, treating 17-year-olds as, as adults. We now treat them as juveniles. Well, and, and that seems to have given uh, judges at the circuit court level a lot more leeway in how they approach these things. So, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what your personal philosophy is if somebody's coming before you and how, how you're going to gauge uh, the facts of each of these cases. They're all going to be different, obviously, but what's the sort of similar approach you take to each of these? Right. So on the juvenile side, um, on the juvenile side, I'm really interested in, is this young person in school? Are they in school? Because we know that truancy leads to crime. We know that one of the best indicators of whether a young person is going to end up in the adult criminal system is whether they're involved in the juvenile system. So we have to, we, we, we don't want to treat the juvenile system as a gateway to the adult prison system. So I'm really interested in whether or not they're in school in whether or not they have uh, some kind of family support. So, you know, who do you live with? And many times, you know, they live with auntie and they they don't know where their parents are sometimes. Um, There's no question we have a disproportional disproportional minority representation in our juvenile justice system. We have a disproportional minority representation in our adult criminal system as well. And that's something that um, I think that we as a court really need to address. And the Black Lives Matter Matters movement, in my mind, has really brought that issue, that disparity issue, um, to a place where we as a court can say, how does that, how, what can we do? How can we ally with this, with this movement? What can we gain from this movement? And, you know, I, I chaired a, a statewide study several years ago looking at that issue of racial equity 
how are juveniles disproportionately represented in the juvenile justice system and why? So if, if the young person before me is a person of color, I'm concerned. I'm concerned because I know that they're disproportionately overrepresented. And it's, you know, different counties take different approaches to juvenile justice because we don't have a statewide approach to it. So a young person in Berrien County, for example, might commit a crime and they might be put, uh, they might be put in some residential treatment center. The same, the same crime may be committed by a young person in St. Midland County and they're gonna be given some, some programs that are appropriate to, are age appropriate to that person. So I'm very interested if the young person's in school, I'm very interested in what kind of support system they have at home. I'm interested in, in whether or not they are able to keep rules. So, you know, do, do, you, do you have a curfew? Do, 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 your parents, do your parents have a curfew for you? Um, and maybe they've never had that structure. Maybe they don't have a curfew. And, and so that's an important fact to me that, you know, they haven't been raised with structure. And so I think that, you know, there's no question every case is different, but every young person that comes before the, the, the court, that's the only case they care about. You know, they only care about their own case. They don't care about the others. And so I think it's really important that time and attention is really given to these cases and that young people to the extent that we can divert them, um, it's very, very important that we do. And again, there's been such, such, such progress made on this um, at the, at the state statewide level. And that's just reflecting what's being done nationally. My guest once again, Mary Beth Kelly, candidate for Wayne County Circuit Court. Uh, this is a question that I have for you from a voter's perspective, because at the Supreme Court level, there's a at least a guide for voters. You know, you can see who was nominated by the Republicans, who was nominated by the Democrats, which I think personally is, is incredibly stupid because judicial independence is supposed to be there. Uh, you know, some partisan nominations I think are a bad idea. But at the same time, at the circuit court level, you're all coming in as independents, right? Um, so what should somebody be looking at as a voter when they're considering who to put on the bench? So there's organizations that um, interview us as candidates and give us rankings. So the Detroit Bar Association has done this for decades and decades and decades, probably since before I was born, and I'm pretty old. And um, they give they give rank they give actual rankings. So you fill out a questionnaire, a very long questionnaire. You attach opinions to it. Um, then they interview you in a Zoom interview with many panelists, and they give you a rating. So um, this year, they gave Chandra Baker and myself outstanding which is the highest rating that they have. And then the Wolverine Bar Association is another very important bar association that um, really champions the work uh, of our minorities. And they've done a great job. The Wolverine Bar Association has done wonderful, wonderful things. Likewise, we got a questionnaire. They, they interview us all separately. Um, and again, um, I got uh, extremely well qualified, which is the highest ranking one can get. Chandra Baker got the same. Uh, the other candidates got lesser ratings. So I think looking at organizations, nonpartisan organizations that you respect, um, is an important way to gauge uh, what kind of judge you're, you are actually voting for. And that's what I would recommend to voters. Uh, all of us have websites. So, my, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to campaign here, but my, my website, for example, is marybethkellyforjudge.com. The other candidates, if you just put their name in, 
their websites will come up. And you can look at their websites and they'll, they'll tell you what their ratings were by these various organizations. And so I, I think that's a really good way for citizens to evaluate their judges. Well, I, I do want to ask you a little bit about the Supreme Court, though, just because, I, as, I, as I hinted at, uh, you know, this partisan system that we have here in Michigan is very odd to me because, you know, yes, I'm nominated by the Republicans, but I swear I'm not bringing any of that stuff with me to the bench. Uh, and, and I know judicial independence is something. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think that's probably how they felt about me. But, well, um, but, but it's, it's funny because you see these ads for candidates, and there aren't as many this year, which is interesting to me. There have not been flooding the airwaves the way they used to in years past, where but they're like, you know, he's tough on crime or she's, you know, doing this. But not, those aren't the types of cases that you're hearing at the Supreme Court. I mean, so, so for voters' perspectives there, when engaging and trying to figure out who's going to be a good Supreme Court justice – yeah. What advice do you have for voters in terms of what they should be thinking about when they pull that lever? So again, judicial independence, like you say, I think is the, the most important quality for a Supreme Court justice. And again, that's difficult to convey because a statute in Michigan requires that political parties nominate you. Now, um, you can gauge someone's judicial independence by uh, who's supporting them, for example. Do they have a cross-section of support from different organizations that favor more, conser more conservative, more political? What kind of experience do they have? You know, the Supreme Court is not a place to go and cut your teeth and being a judge. It, it's just not. You know, you, you have to bring uh, a, level of, a level of experience with you which I think you have to bring a level of experience to the circuit court. I don't think, I don't think any judge position is one for a novice. You, you, need, you need an experience in the legal world that's going to allow you to bring a perspective to the cases. But I think that you can certainly evaluate Supreme Court justices on the basis of independence, um, on, on their histories, on their track record, so to speak. What, what have they done before they've run for the Supreme Court that would qualify them to be the final arbiter of what the law of the state of Michigan should be. And that's really what the question is. Well, one last question for you. I've kept you for quite a while already, and I appreciate the time you've been willing to give me today. Um, you know, for all the things we've been talking about today, and we are sensing a real shift in the way that sort of uh, the legal system is looking at, at just about everything. Uh, there's lots of conversations about systemic racism in this country. And, and how difficult is it going to be to sort of unpack that from the judicial system here in Wayne County and frankly, statewide, nationwide? So there's no question. That's a great, that is a great question. And racial, um, racial inequities is something that, again, um, has plagued the Wayne County Circuit Court. Um, back when I was the chief judge of the court in 2005, I made it the mission to really, really seriously approach this issue of a lack of diversity in the Wayne County jury pool. And I brought in the National Center for State Courts and they, they conducted a two-year study and came up with recommendations. We now still have a committee on the Wayne County Circuit Court to increase the uh, participation of minority jurors. So it's, it's a problem that, as you say, is systemic. Um, but there, there are certainly, certainly ways that, you know, again, being mindful of a young person who comes before you, if that person is of color, they have a very, very different background and they might not have the support. They may be a very affluent African-American. I'm certainly not suggesting that there are not those because there sure. are. 
But, but I think that in addressing the systemic racism, um, we, need to, we need to come together, we need to ally with those persons who can really, really champion those issues. And um, again, we have, I think, a very diverse bench, which I think speaks well to the citizens of Wayne County. It speaks well to the citizens of Wayne County to know that uh, the, the court consists of a huge cross-section of, um, of all ethnicities. And I think that that's very, very important. But um, we, we have to look for those opportunities, like I say, to really partner with those community outreach programs that are there and say, what can they bring to the court? How can they help us? And so we, we need help. We, we need persons to do pro bono work. We need legal aid societies. We need public defenders. And to the extent that we can um, help mentor young people uh, into the legal profession, into the judiciary, we should be doing that. All right. Well, Justice Kelly, we certainly appreciate your time today. Uh, we anxiously await the results of the election coming up in just a few weeks, but we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Craig.